investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 26 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is uh, Thursday, August 8th, 2019. Going to keep this podcast relatively brief. Just a few key topics to discuss this week. Off the top, the U.S. labeled China a currency manipulator as the Chinese currency hit an 11-year low. Why did China's currency depreciate? Crude oil. Big news in the oil market, it hit a seven-month low and a bear market, about 25% down since its peak in April. What's driving the price action? We're going to chat about what's happening in the oil market. On the micro side, Disney bundles Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN at $12.99, which is a shot across the bow to Netflix. Big challenge there, matching Netflix's price, but with a much more expanded suite of coverage on the streaming side. Will this work, and what are the potential effects on Netflix? Lastly, we'll talk about July factor performance. Biggest news in the market this week, we have a potential currency war breaking out. What happened was the U.S. Treasury officially labeled China a currency manipulator as the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, allowed the Chinese currency, the renminbi, also known as the yuan or RMB, they allowed it to fall past RMB 7 per U.S. dollar for the first time since May 2008. Now, the yuan devaluation was only 1.6%. However, it crossed a key level being this 7 per US dollar. This really spooked global markets. I mean, the S&P 500 dropped 3% just that day on the news. Uh, This was the US index's largest one-day decline of the year. The designation by the Treasury was seen by analysts as largely symbolic move that would serve as a political justification for more tariffs. And I should note that when Trump was campaigning uh, to be president uh, back a number of years ago, one of his campaign promises was to indicate or deem China as a currency manipulator. And so this was kind of way back in his mind what, three, four years ago, and so he's finally following through with one of his campaign promises. And what's really unique is the way that the Chinese currency depreciated. Now, what the the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, does is they engage in open market operations to keep the yuan or the Chinese currency relatively stable, plus or minus around a band compared to the US dollar, roughly a peg that moves around over time. And what they've been doing lately is buying up the Chinese currency in the market to support the price. So all this devaluation was, was less support in the market for the currency. They were doing less buying of the yuan. And so, uh, you know, a skeptic like myself would consider that less manipulation of the currency. But now the U.S. Treasury deems that uh, coming back on buying or decreased buying, they deem that being manipulative, which is somewhat counterintuitive. But that's how, uh, you know, Trump and the political process tends to work. 
Nonetheless, the Treasury Department said China had a long history of facilitating an undervalued concern currency by intervening in the markets. In recent days, China has taken concrete steps to devalue its currency while maintaining substantial FX reserves despite active use of such tools in the past. Allowing the Chinese currency or the yuan to crack seven is a carefully crafted gamble by the Chinese government that it can use the currency to soften or cushion some of the worst effects of this ongoing trade war with the U.S. without triggering capital flight. Now, this is a very delicate balance because if China allows their currency to depreciate too much with respect to the U.S. dollar, then local uh, Chinese people see that. They see their currency losing purchasing power and they immediately want to get their, their assets out of the country before it loses more and more value. The government doesn't want to see that. However, it, as we indicated, this currency does provide quite a good cushion to um, you know the tariffs that Trump is implementing on Chinese goods. But the main crux of the issue here is the two countries seemed near to a deal just a number of weeks ago. But Beijing steered the yuan towards a stronger exchange rate against the dollar as talks were going well. However, when there's relapses, when Trump has a Twitter tantrum implementing more punitive actions on China, this is when the PBOC allows the currency to depreciate. So they're really using it somewhat as a pressure valve in the market to reduce Trump's punitive trade actions against uh, China. But the bottom line is the Chinese currency's move through seven is a sign that Beijing now sees little hope of reaching a near-term trade settlement with the U.S. And markets took it as such, as stated, the S&P down 3% on the news, getting hit hard on that. What are your thoughts on this kind of ongoing trade war now morphing into a currency war? Yeah, and so the the U.S. Treasury designating them as a, as a currency manipulator that actually technically triggers a process where the U.S. can ask the IMF to evaluate China's currency policies, which is another interesting matter, although likely the IMF really wouldn't have much for teeth in, in any sort of judgment they made on China, as China in the past has ignored what the IMF has said. So I don't really think that has a lot of bearing there. But what I really wanted to point out is just, as you had mentioned, this is not really an action from China. It's just a lack of action. And it's very ironic that the U.S. is accusing China effectively of not allowing free market forces to dictate the value of their currency, which the U.S. is supposed to be the most free market country in the world. And so the fact that they're vilifying a, another country for not allowing their country to roll with the uh, free market valuation is just, I, I find a little ironic and, and a little bit comical. Oh, certainly. And what you're seeing is each country and the way that a currency war comes into play is, you know, each country tries to get their currency to depreciate such that uh, local businesses are more competitive in the international market. But Trump sees another country allow its currency to depreciate, and he believes, you know, it's a, 
it's kind of a win-lose situation, a zero-sum game. And so he believes that the U.S. dollar needs to depreciate in order to make U.S. businesses uh, more competitive on an international scale. And you have this competitive devaluation of each country's currency as they try to keep up with that game. Got an interesting tweet from Trump here on the news. He indicated China dropped the price of their currency to an almost historic low. It's called currency manipulation. Are you listening, Federal Reserve? This is a major violation which will likely weaken China over time. So Trump taking the opportunity not to not only bash China, but also the Fed, as he usually does. He also tweeted, China had used currency manipulation to steal our businesses and factories, hurt jobs, depress our workers' wages, and harm our farmers' prices. Not anymore. Got an economist from a Commerce Bank quoted here stating, the market implications of breaching 7.0 are tremendous. And he's indicating this key threshold of RMB 7 per US dollar. We will see a new wave of depreciation among Asian currencies in the foreseeable future. And there could be further risk off movements in global markets. It looks like a tsunami is coming. And so what this economy is indicating is that in the global currency markets, there tend to be knock-on effects. So as China allows its currency to depreciate, well, you're seeing other Asian currencies depreciate as well. And if we go back 20 years in late 90s, there was an Asian currency crisis where you had big devaluations of several Asian currencies, and it really led to panic throughout many markets and wild moves even in uh, equity markets. And it just shows you how interlinked all global markets are, currencies, commodities, equities, fixed income. The other interesting aspect is that Trump has alluded to in the past in his tweets, although not directly saying it, but that there is the option for the U.S. to take moves to devalue their own currency, which, I mean, one of those moves is just the Federal Reserve uh, decreasing rates. That's just a, a common way to devalue your currency, although it's not explicitly stated. Right, and, and I believe we saw comments out of Powell stating that uh, managing the currency is not part of their mandate. They're, they have this dual mandate for stable prices and maximum employment. And I believe the job of managing currency value falls to the Treasury. And so that would be uh, Steven Mnuchin, one of Trump's key advisors who runs the Treasury. That would more so um, you know, fall on their shoulders. However, Trump doesn't seem to uh, uh, acknowledge that. It's very uh, clear that he doesn't acknowledge <laughs> any form of the Fed being independent. So that's not surprising. Right. He pretty much just takes uh, any opportunity he can to uh, bash the Fed and try to uh, pressure, implement maximum pressure on the Fed to consistently lower rates. But touching back on this Chinese currency devaluation, we actually do have a precedent here. We had something similar in 2015. China depreciated or devalued their currency in 2015 and actually August of 2015. Um, in order to provide a short-term boost to the Chinese economy. However, uh, it did prompt major capital outflows at the time, and it drew the ire of critics in Washington who accused Beijing of currency manipulation and ensured regular scrutiny from the U.S. Treasury. However, back then, they were not deemed uh, 
you know, currency manipulator. And back then in 2015, the PBOC actually let the RMB fall 3% on August 11th, 2015. Now compared to this week's drop, which was only 1.6% back in 2015, it was actually, you know, nearly twice as large. And looking at market action uh, on that precedent four years ago, the TSX index actually went on to lose nearly 18% over the next five months. Uh, so from August 11th, 2015, it didn't actually bottom until January 2016. So you had quite the extended risk off period from that. Nonetheless, some market action on this current devaluation, S&P 500 down 3% lower. It's the biggest one day drop since December 4th, sixth consecutive session of decline, longest losing streak in 10 months. And then you had some interesting action on the fixed income side. Treasury yields down 12 basis points to 1.735%. So government bonds rallying on that risk off move in the currency markets. We're seeing interesting knock-on effects of this ongoing trade war in the crude oil market. Now, what happened there was oil actually declined into a bear market as prices declined nearly 5% on Wednesday, taking the peak to trough decline this year of negative 24.5% from their peak price in April. Now, what happened here was crude oil futures came under selling pressure, declined pretty markedly from Number one, an uh, unexpected build in stockpiles, so big inventory build there on the supply side, combined with slowing demand due to economic concerns from this ongoing global trade war. Some price action, so Brent crude oil, which is the European benchmark now, Settled around 57 bucks. It's down 14% since Trump announced new tariffs last week. So pretty large decline after uh, Trump escalated the U.S.-China trade war. WTI, the North American benchmark crude oil price, around 52 and change. So still a pretty significant discount uh, compared to the European uh, benchmark oil price. On the supply side, now government data showed a build, build or stockpile of 2.4 million barrels of U.S. crude stockpiles last week. This was compared to 2.8 million drawdown analysts had expected, so less crude coming out of stockpiles than expected. Uh, this is about 2% above the five-year average for this time of year. Interesting comments out of Saudi Arabia, and so Saudi Arabia is one of the largest producers in the world, typically uh, second or third in top three with US and Russia. But Saudi Arabia is highly reliant on the oil price to, to run their economy, and they're the de facto leader of OPEC, the uh, oil international oil cartel. So what Saudi Arabia is trying to do is they're, they're trying to combat this price decline. They like to see oil typically in the $60 to $80 range. Traders said there were reports that Saudi officials were considering all options to stop the drop in oil prices, and that they believe the fall has been caused by fears of an economic slowdown, not an oversupply of crude, but one of the mechanisms that Saudi Arabia does have is to basically reduce their production and take supply out of the market. What are your thoughts on the interesting price action in the oil markets? Well, there was actually some good news coming out of oil markets this week as well. We did see that Chinese imports were up 14% over July. So that is a key market for end, uh, end products as well as just crude oil in general. 
but I, w I would agree with some of your comments just regarding the cause of uh, this price action being there's just a lot of fear about the economic a potential economic slowdown there is as well on the other side some oversupply issues but I think it's really been being driven by the fear on the economic side and that's just if you look at the price of oil uh, around some of Trump's comments over the last you know month or month or two months um, you do see some spikes down whenever he does start tweeting about the trade war. Right, and so it's interesting for investors to note just how interconnected global capital markets are. You have a Trump tweet, uh, the Dow Jones tanks 550 points on that, but it's not just equity markets. You're seeing international effects on currencies. You're seeing effects on commodities with a big decline in the price of oil. And, and so it's really... You should really take uh, into account all of the uh, the news. It doesn't affect just domestic equities, U.S. equities, but you know it affects everything: prices at the pump, uh, interest rates, currencies, exchange rates. So it's uh, something to keep in mind how interconnected global markets really are these days. I would also just mention, sp speaking domestically in Canada, is that the Canadian oil and gas market has a number of headwinds. Um, on the domestic front, you know, to do with uh, pipeline capacity, uh, other issues like that, and discounts. And this is just another headwind facing a sector that has really low sentiment, has struggled to raise capital, um, and their results have been getting hammered over the last, you know, five or six years. It certainly has been a five-year bear market for energy, and I believe the Canadian Energy Index is actually significantly lower than its peak in 2007. So tough time for energy investors, but I mean, I don't really see any uh, sun on their horizon for them. It seems like more cloudy skies, more tough market, and so, you know, they're in a tough spot. Interesting news on the stock-specific side. Now, Disney came out with a really interesting press release this week indicating that they're going to bundle their three uh, streaming platforms, Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN+, Plus, at $12.99 per month, which is a direct challenge to Netflix because Netflix's main offering costs the same price. Now, our thoughts here is that consumers may not go outright and cancel their Netflix. However, what it does is it really limits Netflix's pricing power. As we previously discussed, like Netflix is highly reliant on future price hikes. They're burning a ton of cash, producing content, um, negative free cash flow to the tune of about $3 billion per year. I believe they spent 15, or are going to spend 15 billion on content this year. And so at some point, they need to at least get to break even. And what was shown last quarter when they did increase price is that their core business really suffered. I mean, the shares fell 10% after subscriber growth was actually negative in North America and significantly below not just consensus, but their own guidance internationally. And I should note that that price increase, it, w it came without significant competition because this Disney service, I mean, they haven't even really launched it yet, uh, not to mention this killer package that I view, Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN at $12.99. I mean, that seems like tremendous value. And if we talk about Netflix having to raise their price to say over time to 20 bucks a month, unless Disney is leading those price increases, it's gonna be tremendously difficult, if not impossible, for Netflix to get their price 
that high when Disney is sort of anchoring it around this 13 bucks per share level. Not only is Netflix reliant to make their business um, at least break even, if not profitable, over time. Uh, in addition to that, um, they have a tremendous multiple in the market, you know, a huge valuation, which is really reliant on future price increases to justify it. So what are your thoughts on this, what I think genius move by Disney to uh, really um, take the competition to Netflix? Yeah, and first I would mention that speaking directly to Disney is that they have a unique advantage over Netflix um, with regards to their content costs um, as most of their content is evergreen and it's, if I believe it was either Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett described Disney as oil wells that just continually keep pumping and pumping and you can repurpose the characters that Disney already has. You can repurpose their content and build other content on top of that. So it's in a really unique situation and as you had mentioned, Netflix spending 15 billion this next year in capex costs for for content it's uh, a, a really interesting in terms of who's go who's going to be the low cost producer is most certainly going to be disney the other aspect is you when you discuss the pricing power and with the pricing power for netflix if you're just increasing it a dollar or two and there's you're just comparing that to the traditional cable bundle which is you know in the 80 to 100 dollar range a one or two dollar increase really isn't that significant from that consumer's price to value perspective but when you have another competitor that's around the same amount same price point well that completely changes that dynamic and so then what the question really becomes is what percentage of the consumer's wallet share are our streaming services going to have moving forward how much can they command from that consumer's wallet you know is that fifty dollars is a hundred dollars that really matters for the overall thesis on netflix right because one of the main value adds or appeals of streaming were significantly lower prices than cable however once you have disney netflix all these other services hbo at what point is that negated you know next thing you know you add up all your streaming services while you're paying 100 bucks a month how is that any different than cable I'd also like to note there's a really interesting shareholder dynamic uh, between Netflix and Disney and we really saw that in action this week when Disney came out with their quarterly results because their stock was down 5% as their earnings per share came quite a bit below uh, analyst expectations so their margins were lower, expenses were higher which shows that their investors are quite sensitive on profitability and so they really got to be careful here in how they operate their streams services because Netflix historically their shareholders have not cared whatsoever about profitability all they care is spend 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 grow 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 as quickly as you can Disney shareholders are not like that at all they're highly uh, highly reliant on steadily steady increases in earnings per share they're highly sensitive to margins profitability etc so that's another core thing to watch as Disney dips its toes into the streaming service in competition with Netflix, whose shareholders have really never cared about profitability. Absolutely. And in terms of another thing that I thought was quite ironic is that cord cutting originally with these media companies was a way for consumers to fight back against the bundle. Now media companies are just rebundling their content in a different way. 
It's really quite analogous to what robo-advisors are doing in the financial services space as part of the goal was to unbundle all the financial services. But now what you're seeing from some of these top providers is they're just rebundling through the use of their robo-advisor app as a customer acquisition tool and then upsell products across uh, across to their customers. I just thought it was a kind of unique and an interesting uh, analogy to what's going on in the financial services well, space. Yeah, certainly, and I agree with that because, um, you know, the main... One of the main criticisms of cable is, you know, it's a very high price and a lot of wasted channels that you don't utilize. And robo-advisors are kind of indicating the same thing about financial advisors, saying, oh, you know, we can cut out a lot of, this, a lot of the stuff people don't need and offer it on an automated basis at a, at a significantly lower price point. And so you're seeing that action in both these industries. We released our monthly Alpha Rank uh, Factor Performance this week, which measures the performance of various factors, including value, quality, price momentum, operating momentum, and trend. And so this was really just a kick-ass month for multi-factor investing. I mean, we had net alpha or outperformance on 12 different factors we measure. And so there's uh, the aggregate multi-factor performance. So our, the long minus short uh, portfolio was up 8.5% in Canada and up 8.9% in the US, uh, which is tremendous performance uh, in a month of July where the TSX was you know, nearly flat up slightly, and the S&P 500 was up about uh, 1% and change. Uh, in Canada, great uh, long multi-factor performance, north of 5%. This was largely driven by price momentum, operating momentum, and trend. Same thing on the short side. Those offering exceptional divergence on the price, operating momentum, and trend. Then we look at the value and quality side, um, really no performance out of quality and value, which is kind of you know, the story as it's been this year. Value has sucked for a long time and quality not doing too well, but nonetheless, uh, price momentum, operating momentum and trend, really making it up, making up for it. We see something similar in the US. However, um, you had tremendous net alpha from multi-factor in the US, but Nearly all of this, or in fact, all of it was driven by the short side. I mean, long only was pretty much flat. However, the short side generated, generated nearly 9% return, which is really the case on all five other factors, value, quality, price, momentum, operating momentum, and trend, where the short portfolios dropped anywhere between 4% and 9.4%. And so the main point being here is that you know, multi-factor multi investing can be really uh, value-added. And where a lot of people don't get it right is, say, on the smart beta side, they're trying to capitalize on these factor premiums. However, um, as the numbers show here, smart beta is long only. And where we've seen the bulk of the alpha or performance generated has been on the short side. And so that's one of the main value adds of multi-factor long short investing is that you're harvesting significant amount of alpha on the short side. And when you look at net alpha generation, a large chunk of that comes from the short portfolio. And you're just not getting that in smart beta, which is a long only strategy. So, you know, I. 
implore investors to you know really take a look at really consider multi-factor long short investing which goes far beyond uh, smart beta in terms of sophistication where you're really really capitalizing on those uh, risk premia uh, on the short side to generate not just additional alpha but to hedge your long portfolio manage risk manage volatility. So in my opinion, a significantly better strategy than looking to harvest factor premia on the long only side. And you can argue that, you know, the long only factors are getting crowded with a bunch of, um, you know, factor-based ETFs, but you're really not seeing that in my opinion on the short side, as I indicated, more and more uh, long short net alpha being generated on the short side of multi-factor investing. And that's all for us this week of the Absolute Return podcast, episode 26. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to check out more episodes at absolutereturnpodcast.com. You can check out all our older episodes there or uh, any of the major podcast providers. That's it for us this week. Uh, Leave us a rating, uh, send us a review, and we'll chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.